Being a mom is the toughest job there is, and it doesn't come with instructions. So it's okay if you don't have all the answers. We'll figure it out together. This is Mom Brain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. Hey guys, welcome back to Mom Brain. I'm Ilaria. And I'm Daphne. And today's episode is a topic that we actually get a lot of emails about, and that is surrogacy. So we talk about everything that goes into motherhood, and this is a big one. We are going to be talking with Angela Richardson-Mook. She is the co-founder and executive director of Alcia Surrogacy, and she helps connect different couples and um, and people who are exploring the option of using a surrogate, people who are committed to the option of exploring having a surrogate um, through the various the protocols, the screenings, the process, and ultimately the family building experience of using surrogate mothers. She's been a surrogate herself. She's she's a mother of four. She has carried six children for other people. So I want you guys to to listen to this because she has so much information in her in her tiny little body. She's this tiny little woman that looks like she's like 25 years old. And um <laughs> This is so fascinating. So listen up. I were really excited for uh, you to listen. Here is our conversation with Angela. My name is Angela Richardson Mook, and I am executive director and co-founder of Alcia Surrogacy. Um, I am a mother of four amazing children. And uh, we have three children uh, that we conceived the traditional way. Um, and being college sweethearts, they are older. We actually have a 22-year-old, a 19-year-old, and a 15-year-old. And then I went on to do um, two egg donations, and I carried for three couples, um, having six gestational carrier children. And then after I was all said and done, um, I decided to go back and uh, do IVF because we had secondary infertility. And now we have our fourth child, who is only two. So there's a spread there. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, in addition, I've been incredibly active in um, some legislative efforts to ensure that specifically LGBTQI uh, plus people can uh, be accurately depicted on their children's birth certificates. Um, and so that in combination with my agency, um, we're just really working hard to bring awareness to surrogacy and um, make sure that everybody understands the resources and uh, things available to them. Uh, now, where can we follow you? What's your website? Uh, yep. It's just alciasurrogacy.com is our website. Um, we're at alcia underscore surrogacy on Instagram. Um, I'm at alciasurrogacy on TikTok. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn just under my name, Angela Richardson Mook. Um, and, and we do have some links there to Alcia Surrogacy, who has a business page there. Amazing. So I'm so excited to have you on, Angela, um, because we want to know all about um, the world of surrogacy. You know, it's something that we hear a lot about regarding celebrities. And, you know, a lot of, I, that's kind of, I think, most people's connections to it is like, oh, the Kardashians did right. surrogacy or this person did surrogacy. Um, but obviously, this is something that regular families are doing surrogacy as well. Um, anyway, so talk to us, what is surrogacy? So I think when you talk about surrogacy, you first off have to make sure that you make the distinction between traditional surrogacy and gestational surrogacy. So traditional surrogacy is far less common, and that is when you will use artificial insemination and the, the person carrying the child is actually the biological link to that child. So traditional surrogacy, uh, you know, it is legal. Uh, a lot of people take advantage of that. Uh, my particular agency does not manage that, and it's far less common uh, because the legalities are a little stickier. 
uh, because of that biological connection, a traditional surrogate actually has uh, the same legal rights as a birth mother. So while uh, it is a little cheaper and uh, you know sometimes a little bit of an easier process, uh, when we say surrogacy in the terms of the discussion today, we're talking about gestational surrogacy. Okay. So gestational surrogacy is um, essentially where an embryo is made uh, in the laboratory and the genetic component of that, uh, a, uh, that embryo can be um, from the intended parents, meaning both the biological uh, result of the, the parents that are having the carrier carry the child for them. Um, it could be with a sperm donor, it could be with an egg donor, and it could be with both. So you actually have a lot of surrogacy arrangements in which the intended parents don't have a biological link to the child that their surrogate is carrying. And so that's all handled um, differently, uh, you know, in, in the legal sense, uh, the contracts are drawn up a little bit differently. But the safety of gestational surrogacy is uh, the parents are the parents uh, prior to the baby even being born. There is a court process called the pre-birth order. Uh, you know, both uh, sides of the table enter into a legally binding an agreement. Um, that agreement then is given to the judge who reads and makes sure that the arrangement was done, uh, you know, by the book, uh, by the, the state regulations, et cetera. And then they grant what's called a pre-birth order. And that pre-birth order allows the parents to be the parents of that child, even though that surrogate is carrying. So then the gestational carrier delivers and uh, those parents' names go on the birth certificate. And in essence, the, the carrier has no biological link whatsoever and is just kind of the vessel in which the child comes earthside. I want to break it down for people so we're not missing any of the details, because I do think it's certainly if this is your first time talking about a surrogacy conversation, the idea that like traditional surrogacy is actually the one that's least common and this new kind of surrogacy is actually the most common. So just just to break it down, the idea being there are cases where the couple needs an egg donated, but the sperm from the husband works and and that and they do it that way in a a host mother, Correct. a host carrier, gestational carrier, then, right, a gestational carrier. Then you have the option where the egg from the 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 mother who will eventually have the baby is is good, but you need a sperm donor, and that can also be carried in gestational Absolutely. character, uh, character not character carrier. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, I'm getting muddled. And um and then there's a, a obviously the option where it's the husband and wife's egg and and sperm combined carried in the gestational carrier, yeah. and that's and the then most it's common. Where, and that is the most common. See, yes. that's fascinating to me. Why is that the most common experience for you? So um, believe it or not, unexplained infertility is is really one of the most common uh, reasons people seek out a gestational carrier. So they've been able to get pregnant time and time again, but for whatever reason, they can't stay pregnant. So the eggs are fine. There's just something about the environment in which the embryo growing just doesn't work. And, um, you know, I would say, uh, you know, I can't speak for other agencies, but from my own clients, I mm -hmm. think 75% of my intended parents are in that situation. They have no idea why. They just know they have reoccurrent miscarriages. So that's the most common. And then I think using an egg donor is usually the second most common. Um, mm -hmm. And that is something that, um, you know, they've tried oftentimes with the own eggs multiple times and it just hasn't worked. And, you know, they've even maybe tried with uh, the both the mom and the dad's genetic components in a surrogate and it hasn't worked. Or, you know, they have a known anomaly that they just don't produce quality eggs and they kind of know from the get-go that, that a donor is going to be needed. Mm -hmm. Sperm donor is far less common. One thing to really point out about the last bit of dialogue is you can yes. also have no genetic relation to the child whatsoever. So you can have 
an egg donor and a sperm donor make the embryo, have that placed mm-hmm. into the gestational carrier, and then have them the legal parents. And I want to make sure that I know people understand that that is an option. Because, um, you know, I've had a couple of heartbreaking stories that um, with couples that have had failed adoptions, where they've taken the baby home and the birth mother has decided she can parent. And while they're happy that the birth mother can make that choice, that's devastating for them. So they come and they said, you know, my heart cannot take that again. And I want a child so badly. And uh, so that's another avenue. And I think that's very important because people do not see that as an option. So I just want to make sure we, we, we mentioned that. So I think first and foremost, every intended parent, um, whether you be, uh, you know, you're, you're an intended mother or you're a gay couple that knows you're going to need to use a surrogate, uh, I think that you have to mourn whatever it is that's important to you. So everybody has a preference. Uh, you know, I get a lot of phone calls in which the biological connection is the most important thing to the parents. I've got others where it's that they just want they don't want to deal anymore with the heartbreak, right? They're just done. They're they're just ready to say, I can no longer continue the emotional roller coaster of infertility. Um, and it's time for me to just kind of surrender that control. But I think, you know, every intended parent that comes through, you know, our agency, our social worker talks in depth with them about ensuring that they've, you know, gone to counseling and that they've mourned their inability to carry or their need to use a gestational carrier. You know, this is an intimate, intimate relationship and it's with a stranger. Mm-hmm. And I, I really do not think that you can understand and fully articulate what that is on both sides, the intended mother and or intended father side, as well as the carrier side, unless you've experienced it. Um, and so I think that's why any good reputable agency is going to say in that very first conversation, you know, how long have you been going through this? Have you exhausted all of your options? Are you sure you are ready for this emotional undertaking? You know, you, know, you Hilaria, you have an amazingly healthy lifestyle. You know, you are so diligent in everything that you put into your body. And, you know, you have to surrender the control of the, the vessel for your child if we were to use that, you know, any intended mother would have to do that. I know, uh, you know, my second intended mother, uh, she was a Jewish woman and she was one of her most important criteria was that she had a surrogate that would eat kosher. And we did find her uh, a surrogate. However, she wasn't Jewish. She would agree, though, to eat kosher, but she has to give that level of trust up. So I think that, you know, you have to just be prepared for all these circumstances and you have to have mourned whatever it is and you have to be ready to just say, I'm no longer willing to kind of experience the roller coaster on my own. And it's time to open this up and and bring in the help that we need. What does the process look like? So someone reaches out to you, what happens? So um, you you would come to the agency, you would do your screening and and there is some screening on on the intended parent side too. You know, we ensure that you're safe and, and, you know, that you're not on any kind of sex offender registry list and background check, that kind of thing. And that you have the financial ability to to pay for a surrogate. So, Mm -hmm. you know, your surrogate would be left without their compensation. Um, but you would both go through your screenings um, and assuming that those um, you, you pass those, you would meet, um, you would have conversation. Um, and once both parties have decided that they'd like to work together, you enter into a legal agreement. Um, this is by far probably the most important part of the entire arrangement. Um, mm-hmm. There is absolutely no topic that is off 
of the table for a surrogacy contract, and it shouldn't be. Um, every single thing that you plan or need in that arrangement needs to be put into that that contract. So, you know, things like termination. Let's say you get to 20 weeks and you have your 20 week scan and the scan determines that that baby is not compatible with life. By the U.S. Constitution, you cannot force a woman to have an abortion. So what you need to do is ensure that you are both on the same page about what you're going to do in that situation. Wow. That is spelled out in the contract. So the surrogate says, I won't terminate under any circumstances. And the attendant parents can decide whether or not they want to work you know, with that surrogate. You know, these are things we ask in the, in the screening process, because by the time mm-hmm. you get to contracts, you should already be on the same page. It can't fall apart at that part. You know, you, you should have already had these conversations in the very, very beginning when right. you match with one another. Um, it's like know, marriage. So, exactly right. <laughs> and if, if, you get, if you get to contracts and things fall apart, you you had an agency that didn't do good screening because I mean, yeah. these this like is conversation too. Um, you know, termination. Um, do you, if the surrogate needs something for sleep, do you expect that they need to call the intended mother and ask, are you okay that I take medicine? Um, is there any dietary, you know, things that you would like your surrogate to do? Or is there anything about the surrogate's job that's dangerous? Uh, all of those things, you know, you'll, you know, you have to abstain from sex for a certain amount of time. And you put that in that contract because there's a, a small window when you're doing your, your, your cycle that if you were to have sex, um, you know, with your husband, you could get pregnant be pregnant, do the embryo transfer, they not know it, and then you oh, could end up. So, I mean, <laughs> you, crazy. So, but all of those things, they're, they're talked about, and you commit to those things. You know, you basically sign on the dotted line that I'm going to adhere to every single one of these things. And, that, you know, this is what we have decided on because it's an effort of good faith and trust. Um, and so you fill your contract, you, you have your contracts, um, a good agency ensures that both parties have their own legal representation so that they can ask those questions. Um, you know, they're, they're not, you know, there's no conflict of interest. Um, you agree on your, um, compensation. That's also all spelled out how that is given, how that's distributed. Um, and then you have those both signed and notarized. Um, and then it's the responsibility of the intended parent to fund the trust, um, we have a, an outside agency. Our agency doesn't touch that money. Um, they, you know, upload it into a trust that everyone has, you know, a- access to log into the app and see and make sure that that's distributed to the surrogate at the right time and that all of the, the the doctor's bills are paid. It's all there, you know, every month that you can see exactly where all that money goes. Um, you begin your cycling. Um, so they'll go to the endocrinologist, um, kind of get everything looked at, determine where you are in your cycle. Um, you'll start your medications. Um, you usually do about three weeks of shots into your belly. Um, that's Lupron. It kind of strips your, your uterus down and prepares you for your, your, your cycle. Um, and then you'll begin estrogen and then you start, uh, progesterone shots. Um, I know you guys have talked to doctors, uh, on here previously and, you know, shots aren't always the way now. Now they have gels and vaginal suppositories and even nasal spray. So, you know, your protocol is a little bit different, but you do a medication that kind of fluffs up your uterus and prepares it for the transfer. Um, and then the surrogate will, tra- uh, tra- travel to the, to the clinic. Um, they will do the embryo transfer. It's a catheter into the vagina. You see on a, on a little, a sonogram screen, you kind of see it and push it in and you can see the little embryo go floating into your uterus. <laughs> um, and then you lay on your back for 30 minutes or so. Um, and then you take it easy for a week. And um, then about 10 to 12 days after the, the transfer, you do a, a blood draw. Um, you continue the, the shots, you continue the medication to support the pregnancy. Um, and then you uh, see if your HCG is present and you determine if the, 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 the transfer worked. 
um, you know, let's say it did, you celebrate um, and you get really excited and uh, you deliver that news. And then um, you'll continue to do blood draws to make sure that the pregnancy is progressing, you know, in a healthy way. Um, you'll do your ultrasound to detect both that the fetal pole is there and then another five days will pass and you'll do one for the heartbeat. Um, and then you'll continue make medications till about 10 to 11 weeks. Um, mm. And then you're released to your OB and a surrogacy pregnancy then becomes no different than a normal pregnancy. You don't do anything different. You're not handled any differently. Your care is, you know, your standard of care is no different. Um, you continue to obviously build that relationship with your intended parents and then when you get close to the point of viability, um, depending on the state, usually between 21 and 24 weeks, uh, you will then pull up with those respective attorneys again, and you get all the legal paperwork ready to basically attest that this child is the, the, the child of the intended parents. You file that with the court, the court approves that, and then um, you just enjoy the pregnancy and, and the connection and building that relationship with your intended parents until the birth. Um, and then you give birth and, uh, all of that paperwork enables you to leave the hospital, um, as legal parents. And then you have typically kind of determined what level of communication you'll have post, uh, the journey, you know, some want to have a very, you know, continued connection. Some, you know, say I'm really just looking for a carrier and don't mind friendly emails, but don't necessarily want a long-term relationship. Those are again, all things that you should discuss pre-contract that should be spelled out in your contract. Um, and then that's kind of the end. Some women pump, um, for their, for their intended parents and mail the breast milk. Um, I, I did that for, for all my intended parents. And so that's also spelled out in the contract. Um, and that's, it's the end of the, the good story. You, you've, uh, been a surrogate many times over yourself. So t talk to us a little bit about this. So, um, I married, uh, my, uh, so I was in high school and my husband is in college. So we were young sweethearts. And so we have, um, three boys that are older that were all, um, conceived the, the good old way surprise, uh, <laughs> going through college. That was fun, but we did it. And then, um, we have a two-year-old that we actually conceived, um, via IVF, um, uh, because we had secondary infertility later in our life. So, um, we have four children. And then I carried for, um, they're now our family, uh, an amazing gay couple uh, in New York City. And I had all three of their children. Um, and so uh, they are, like I said, still part of our family today. And they were kind of like my introduction into the whole third party reproduction world. Um, and then I did two international egg donations uh, that resulted in five uh, children. And then I've carried um, for two other couples in New York City, one family, I carried one child. And then for the other family, I carried both of their children. So in total, um, I've carried 10 children. That's a lot of children. It makes it me, whenever, whenever I say I have a lot of children, I have five. And Daphne, you, you know, you've said it as well. You have four. It's like we just need to just remember Angela and then close our mouths. <laughs> <laughs> Even between the two of us, we haven't had as many. But oh I think it's gosh. really, really important to, 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 to say just because guidelines are changing and this is very critical. When I started surrogacy, this was like 2006. And I know that that's 14 years, but the amount of the, the sheer volume of, you know, increase in information as well as guidelines. Um, back when I first started surrogacy, there was not a cap on the number of pregnancies that you could have like there is now. So if you there are- There is now. What's the cap now? now? So you cannot have more than um, four C-sections. So um, if you have a uh, total, so if you've had two C-sections and you, you could only do two more surrogacies if you had to have sections, so four total. And then um, as far as vaginal deliveries, 
There is a little bit of a, a wiggle room between clinics, but typically the cutoff is six um, and five even in some circumstances now. Um, and that is because they have found um, that preterm labor is often linked to the number of male genetic components. So let's think about it. In my, in my case, I was a surrogate and I obviously, or I am married. And so I obviously have children with my husband's DNA. Then I was a surrogate for two gay men and they are both biological fathers of those. So that's two more genetic components. And then three more straight couples, that's three more male genetic components. So every time that I was using a new genetic component and carrying that, I was increasing my risk for preterm labor. That's- Wait, I'm sorry. I, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to be dense about this. No. Like, Every you mean every time there's a new male, yes, that so, is what you count as a new male. But like your husband, all three of your sons count as one genetic exactly component. Right. Exactly. Okay. So, but and then you know, two intended fathers, those three children, you know, two of them have one genetic component, the other one has one, and that's then, wild. So, but that realize. was those are studies that came, you know, past the time. I was on my last surrogacy when they really started to crack down. And frankly, um, I was kind of given an exception because I had formed an incredibly close bond with the last family that I carried with, and they really wanted a sibling. Um, and so they made me go through an extensive amount of tests that normal surrogates do not have to go through to confirm that that would be safe for me. Mm. Um, so I just don't want people thinking you can just do this over and over. That would be irresponsible of me. Uh, but those are guidelines that have since changed uh, since I kind of entered the world of third-party repro- reproduction. How does your body feel? Sorry, I'm so sorry. I have to ask. I'm like, what is the deal? I know, I know people don't understand, but so I always make the joke with, you know, like my partner clinics and and the, the girls I'm talking to about surrogacy. If you could bottle up whatever it is that kind of runs through me when I'm pregnant, I would be an addict. And 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 I'm not joking. I would continue to carry if I could, if it were were safe. Um, I love being pregnant. I firmly believe that this is what I was born to do. I genuinely mean that like in my, in my soul. Um, you know, I, I can remember when I was younger, I always was, you know, asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, well, I, I want to be a mommy and a CEO. And, mm-hmm. you know, those two things at that time were kind of mutually exclusive. Right. But both of those things were always so important to me. And, you know, my family, I'm adopted um, and my family uh, took care of foster kids. And I was the 13 year old, you know, getting up in the middle of the night with my parents, foster babies. And that was just what I wanted. And I remember at 19, you know, when I became a mother, all of my friends were like freaking out, you know, like, what are you going to do? Like you were 19, he's 21. Like you guys aren't done with college. And it was difficult. I'm not going to lie, but I just felt like it was something that was natural to me. And and it really always was something that I just have a, a very nurturing type component to my genetic build. And, um, you know, whatever part of it that I am, whether I'm, you know, the carrier or facilitating these arrangements, um, it's, it's literally, um, my calling and it, it's the most beautiful thing that I think anybody could be a part of, you know, seeing, an intended mother's face. And, you know, my last intended mother who had the most heartbreaking time that I could ever think of trying to become a mother. Um, she didn't get to the birth of, of our, of her child. I went into labor quickly and they just couldn't get there. And she got there 32 minutes after the baby was born. And, um, I actually, whenever I'm having a bad day, I rewatched the video, um, because they walked around the corner and I handed her, her child. And when I say I saw her face, change into a mother, I saw years of pain melt from her face. I mean, like, it's like nothing I've ever seen. 
And when you see something like that and that you know you were a part of that, it is so amazingly powerful that I think the more that we can make third-party reproduction accessible to people, the more magic can happen because there's so many amazing options out there for people. Does it feel different carrying your your children and other people's children? Absolutely. Um, um, so uh, when I talk to surrogates, the very first question I get, and, and when I actually talk to intended parents, and when I get, you know, when I engage with people on social media or, or I do seminars, how, you know, how does it feel to give up the baby? Isn't that so hard? Um, and I can tell you, um, I'll never forget it. And it was kind of when I think I found a way to articulate it. I was in Target and I was pregnant with um, my very first surrogate baby and I had three little ones. So I had my three sons running around and, you know, I had three boys that was chaos and they were probably being embarrassing. And, you know, we were trying to get out there as quickly as possible. And this mother who I think thought she was trying to be kind and she was like, oh, you know, you got your hands full. And I was like, yeah. And she said, are you so excited that you're finally going to get your girl? Maybe you'll get a girl and it'll be calm. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I looked at, I was like, Oh, like I'm seven months pregnant, (laughs) but like, I I didn't even remember because you're not planning daycare or your nanny. You're not thinking about names or making sure your life insurance policy is okay. Or your maternity leave is arranged. You're so incredibly disconnected from the process. And I know some surrogates have difficult pregnancies. And so, you know, it's not as easy for them to feel maybe as not pregnant, but it's just not even a a thing for me. And, And so, you know, I'll never forget. Um, I had a, a person, you know, you always get really weird questions. I don't know why when you're a surrogate, people really feel like they can ask like the craziest things. Like y- you would be amazed at some of the things. I mean, just floored. Um, but I remember one of our neighbors said something about, oh, it's, you know, how do you feel to my little son? He was nine. How do you feel about your mom giving up your brother or sister? And he said, so here's what I like to say. And we had had this conversation, obviously. So let's say as our neighbor, you made chocolate chip cookies in your house and you had all the ingredients and you got all of the cookies together and then you open up your oven and it doesn't work. So you bring the cookies to our house and you ring our doorbell and you say, can I use your oven for 20 minutes to cook the cookies? And we say yes. And the cookies come out. Are they our cookies or are they your cookies? And a lady was like, oh, yeah, I guess there are cookies. And so, I mean, that's literally like the dumbed down nine-year-old version. It's, you're just the vessel that carries. And I think that there was never a time that I mourned the the child. In fact, I was relieved to no longer longer be pregnant. And I think the statistic is that um, there's a less than 3% uh, group of women that report that they had a challenge in giving back the child after a gestational care agreement. So the majority, we're talking, you know, the, the strong 97 plus percent that, would agree with that assessment. It's just not difficult. I I think that there's something about being a mother for for women who I I, I maybe for all women and I'd be so curious to hear both of your opinion on this is that pain makes us a mommy. Physical pain makes us a mommy. We have this trophy that we hold up. Well, I I I give birth to a baby and yeah. we probably all heard our our mothers like hold that over yes. us I our entire you. life. Yes. I birthed you. I did this. <laughs> I woke up with you. You vomit on me. All <laughs> these stories that make us a mother. And I think that there must be a moment or maybe many moments of this fear that people won't see you as a mother if you use a surrogate. 
because you didn't do this. So it's not your baby. Yeah. Um, but then you really think about it, you know, as you're saying this, you really think about not just those nine months, but all the sleepless nights, all the, as I just said, the vomiting on you, the school, the, you know, all these lessons that that's there and that nine months, those are important. That oven, that oven time where you're putting your chocolate chip cookies, that's important. But all the other experiences that make you a mother, a father. And think about the emotional capacity that goes in to whether you're a gay couple or a straight couple, a gestational carrier agreement and, and an arrangement. I mean, the typical gestational carrier uh, works with her intended parents for an average of 15 months. Prior to that, um, the intended parents have typically been undergoing infertility treatment of some kind for nine years. So if you think about the emotional capital, the financial burden, and then the mourning of your, you know, the situation, and then finally the surrendering of control to say that they are any, that's an insult to any, any mother that has a child via surrogacy because they're vomiting and, 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 you know, in the, the uncomfortableness and the heartburn, it goes so far into the depth of their soul that right. it is so much more powerful. I'll speak for myself. I, cause I think in some ways and we talk about this all the time here on mom brain, like motherhood is such a universal, everyone's experiences are in some ways so overlapping, but it, it is so personal too. And it's so specific and special to you. And for me, the pregnancy is actually the easiest part, <laughs> like, yeah. it's, you know, and, and, um, and we've talked about this before with breastfeeding. Like I, I do think there are things that you anticipate are going to be like a big bonding moment for you, right? And for some moms, it is such a big bonding moment. And maybe pregnancy is the big bonding moment, or maybe breastfeeding is the big bonding moment, or whatever. And for some people, that's not a possibility. And there are so many other ways to have these mega bonding moments that like, Absolutely. like I have goosebumps right now, just watching Ilaria with Adu and like thinking back to the newborn phase and thinking back to how stressful and exhausting at that time can be. And also how deeply rewarding the self-sufficiency and the feeling of being needed by this little baby can be. And, and that give and take, that is motherhood to me. It is, it is because it does make you raw. It does make you vulnerable. And as you're describing Angela, like your families have been so raw and vulnerable for such a long time. Um, I don't know why it's like making me it really is. Like, I mean, crying. I get goosebumps. Like when I think back, whenever I'm having, you know, a tough day or I, I you know, I, we have failed transfers within my agency, you know, then there's no more embryos. And, and you know that, that I, I, I replay that video and I, and because I, I, it keeps me going and keeps, you know, reminding me why we do this. You know, I just, right before COVID hit, literally like three days before everything went nuts, I went to my first surrogate babies, a bar mitzvah. And oh I just, my you gosh. Know, I, I just think about like, you know, this is insane, like to know that and their whole the entire synagogue was coming up and hugging me. And if they, they go to an LGBTQI friendly synagogue in the city and, you know, they said we never thought we'd have kids here because it's a lot of older people that this wasn't available. They were thanking me for continuing oh. that. I mean, literally, I had thousands of people by the time <laughs> I was done. I was like, oh, my God, I'm surprised I didn't get COVID. I was, I was, I felt like I was kissed by you are the super every, spreader every, every <laughs> on the Upper East Side kissed me that was the week before. Like it was, it was but the, like. 
like, right. and my family, yeah. like we, you know, it's, it, it, you know, it's an absolutely amazing thing. And, you know, that you're, it's much like, you know, my mom who raised me as an adopted person, she's no less my mom. Um, you know, it's, it's your story and, and your story is beautiful and you need to honor that. And, and, you know, I think you guys have talked a lot about it and I've, I, I know that, you know, I've, I see Hilaria be so raw and vulnerable in regards to her losses. Um, and, you know, right now, you know, you see Chrissy Teigen doing that and, and, you know, you see, and I think that the more times and the more people of influence that speak out about the just devastation of, of loss, what it leads to is maybe hope. And surrogacy is a sense of hope for a lot of people that face this loss. And I feel like it's even a more taboo topic than the, the loss part. That's why I want to sort of get at what I want our listeners to, if you are in a position where this is something that you're interested in, uh, whether it's on the surrogate side or surrogacy side, you know, I mean, Angela, Angela is a mother. Angela is a mother. She has four children. And this is something that she decided to do. I think you have to be a mother in order to be a surrogate. You do. It's one of the criteria. Yeah, it's one of the criteria. So, um, so, you know, I mean, I, I think the first thing is, this permission. And that's why I ask a question like that is, you know, I think, you know, over and over again on mom brain, and I'm sure with all your other friends, I'm sure this is stuff that you think about. It's all comes down to mom guilt. Right. And am I worth this? Is it a risk I'm willing to take, you know, on both sides? Do I care about having the baby or do I want to be a mother? Right. You know, and, and at some point, you know, and it's like, do, is breastfeeding really going to be that, you know, I, I have, friends who breastfed and, and, you know, I personally breastfed all of my kids, you know, but we're all still picking dirty chicken nuggets off of the SUV floor at age six, sometimes, you know, <laughs> and that's not what makes us a mother. Uh, and so at the end of the day, that bond I, I can, you know, and, and it's the same with intended fathers. I don't want to leave gay couples out of this equation because, you know, for them, it's a whole, or yeah. this is, they don't even have an opportunity that this is not something, this is something they, know they're going to need, uh, you know, yeah. a, a carrier and, and to see them just morph into fathers, you know, and to do immediate skin to skin. And, you know, when you go through a reputable agency, they're working with hospitals that are very, very familiar with these arrangements. And so they make it as comfortable for the surrogate as well as the intended parents. So the surrogate leaves typically the postpartum floor. So she says she doesn't hear the, you know, the celebration. She's usually moved to a woman's care floor so that she can have kind of her own space. Um, and then the intended parents get their own room and, you know, they can bond with that child, but they can also go visit the surrogate or bring the baby to the surrogate. So you can have as much connection or separation as you kind of agreed upon. And that's all things that you talk about in the beginning and good hospitals ensure that, you know, the intended parents are there to do immediate skin to skin. Um, oftentimes, you know, I had to d- attend a delivery because uh, some of COVID travel restrictions and I got to catch um, the baby because the intended father was planning on it. I mean, how cool is that? Like, yes, seriously, so cool. are you kidding me? <laughs> but they do those kinds of things and good hospitals and agencies have, you know, relationships with those hospitals to make sure that you can do this in a way where everybody feels honored and valuable and that's that rawness is not taken advantage of. In some ways, it seems like it must be being a surrogate must be like one of the best jobs out there. You know, I think of it almost I remember like the nurses. We I'm obsessed with the nurses when I when I deliver my babies. They're just like the most magical people. And it's literally like it's your job to take care of this little person for 
X, you know, nine months theoretically and 10 months. I always hate when it's so you say nine months. I know all the it's, time. 10 months. it's actually 10, 10 months. months. <laughs> it's 10 months. Um, my husband, I think with as many because we have, he still doesn't get it. I'm like, it's 40 weeks, it's 10 months. Um, but for however long the baby is inside of you, um, it's their job to, you know, to take care of them and 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 nurture them as as best that we can. I'd love to move on to the screening process. Yes. Um, because I think the next I'm trying to go into like fears of like why because yeah. this is just something that we don't talk about a lot right. and is something that it is such a solution to so much pain and heartbreak um as as we've talked about or just a solution for for a gay couple of like this is the only way that I could have a biological child. Um so talk to us a little bit about the screening process and it's my understanding as I as I was, you know, looking looking into you as we'll say it, um, and doing my research, it's my understanding that that you do it in a very in a very thoughtful way. Absolutely. So, um, first and foremost, I think that um, anybody that is interested in surrogacy needs to ensure that they understand that it is a process of hurry up and wait. It is a process of rules, and anyone or any agency that suggests that you try to skirt any kind of those ethical responsibilities or try to do things quicker, avoid them like the plague. These mm. arrangements are managed meticulously for a reason, which I will get into when we get to the legalities of this. But this is not a way for anybody to make a quick buck. Um, this is not, you know, and and you got to think about it from the intended parents, oftentimes exhausting a lot of financial resources to get to this point. In addition, the vulnerability that they just want a child so badly any reputable agency has things about them that you need to look for. And, um, you know, not to say independent arrangements can't work, they can, but I would suggest everybody, you know, does their research, works with reputable attorneys. And, and frankly, I am of the very strong opinion, as is ASRM and SEEDS, which is SEEDS is kind of the ethical governing body of surrogacy agencies, that having an agency is a very critical part of making sure that we continue to protect surrogates as well as intended parents. So the, the number one thing is anybody that doesn't have what I'm about to say, they're, they're not doing their diligence from, from a screening perspective. Um, just for context, um, for about every hundred surrogate applications that we get, um, it's about, it, it used to be um, a 2%. Some of the criteria has changed. And so we're right now averaging between four and 5% acceptance rate. So those screenings include, um, they basically fill out a general application and that application is going to ensure um, kind of some of the very basic criteria. Um, 21 to 43 years of age, um, you have to have birthed and are currently raising at least one child. You cannot be on any kind of public assistance. I do need a caveat. There is some exception to that with some of the new legalities in New York. So I'll go through that in a little bit. But right now, there is no state that allows a surrogate to be on any kind of public assistance and be a surrogate. Um, that, that's one of the, the criteria. Um, you will have um, a BMI, um, typically under 32 or 34. Um, you cannot have been on any antidepressant or anxiety medicines for the last year. And uh, you cannot have had complications within your pregnancies. So minor complications, no big deal. There, there. But anything major, preterm labor, pre preeclampsia, um, you know, any kind of placental issues, reoccurrent losses, 
you're not going to be a good candidate. Um, the entire purpose of using a surrogate is to minimize risk. So you want the most optimal and healthy candidate that you can find. If you don't meet those basic criteria, no agency nor any clinic will, will accept you. Um, once you've passed those basic criteria, um, you'll go to what we call kind of our next phase of the, the screening process, which is about a 30 page application. Um, and it is uh, permission for your agency to pull um, a credit check, um, to pull a background check. Um, we do a sex offender check on every adult that lives in the household. Um, and it's um, also, you know, just basically everything about your health history. Um, you give us your all of your obstetric records so that we can have um, an endocrinologist review those and make sure that you're a good candidate. So you also sign a disclosure allowing us to, um, you know, to make to get those records and, and have those reviewed. Um, and then it's just everything about you and your family. You know, how many births you had, how much those babies weighed. Do you have any do you take any medications? Um, you know, it's just about, you know, anything and everything. And then there's uh, several questions in regards to why do you want to be a surrogate? Um, certainly, there's financial compensation for being a carrier, uh, but if that's your only reason for doing it, we need to have some dialogue uh, because that's it. You know, it, that's not typically uh, doesn't lead to successful relationships with intended parents. So there's some psychological test type type questions on there. You know, tell us about the reason why. Tell us about yourself. Uh, what's drawing you to surrogacy? Um, but what we're looking for is stable, healthy women who have had safe and healthy pregnancies that are ready. Um, and have the support system to, to be a successful carrier. So all of those things happen prior to that surrogate getting put into a pool. Um, and then as we have intended parents come, um, we'll ask kind of what they're looking for in a carrier. Um, and then we would match based on those kind of light criteria. It's so interesting because I think from, a, the, from an outsider perspective, you have no idea the amount of truly like intimate knowledge you have to have of a person before, you know, before you would even put them in, in the, in the array, the group or the pool of people who could be matched to a, to a potential family. And I think it's important because we are going to go, we're, you know, diving very deep into this process. People are going to want to know, like, what, what does it cost? Like, what, what are people looking at in terms of a financial outlay to carry a baby from start to finish? Yeah. So, you know, all of those screenings, um, I, I should also add, um, there's that's kind of only the first phase. So once mm -hmm. they've passed through all that and your records have been reviewed and approved, you then do an hour and a half long uh, psychological screening with a PhD, LPC, LCSW, which is basically someone right. that's certified to do this. Um, and they do a virtual home visit. So you kind of walk around your house with, you know, so that you can see you live in safe living conditions. So that's also the next that next piece. Then we would send you to the endocrinologist who would then do a scan of your uterus, do an STI check, draw your blood, do all of that. So that's all happening, you know, prior to going to the pool. Um, and so that is all in your agency fee typically. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But, you know, there is so much variance that I always hate to give a, a, a dollar figure that, that's exact because it depends on a lot of things. Do you need an egg donor? Do you need a sperm donor? Those things cost money, right? An egg donor is an additional, you know, you usually have about a $10,000 compensation for the egg donor plus the medical piece of that, the retrieval. So if you have, um, you know, a, a typical gestational carrier agreement where you need an egg donor, you're looking at typically around $120,000. Um, if you don't need an egg donor um, and you are just looking to use the gestational carrier, it's going to be closer to 100 to 105. And that's going to be your agency fee, um, all of the medical aspect, um, your surrogate compensation, and then there's quite a bit of attorney 
fees that go, uh, you know, into that. But that can vary. You know, I, I've seen it done for, you know, as cheap as like between 80 and 90,000. But like my first intended fathers, they had some issues with their donors and, and you know, it ended up being closer to 200,000. So, you know, wow. it it's it's a wide range. But I think the average last year was around $105,000. Well, now you've made me, now I have two follow up questions. One is like, say, God forbid, whatever reason, the gestational period doesn't work out. Like, the recourse is just you have to start from scratch. Oftentimes, um, you know, especially when you're working with an agency, they have policies to make sure, you know, that you you don't pay all of your agency fee at once. And the reason is mm-hmm. for that exact thing. Like, let's say you have a loss. You know, we're mm-hmm. not trying to, you know, make money here. We're really trying to build families and we want to try to spread that out. So if you do have, a, a tr- you know, just an absolute travesty happen, you haven't exhausted all of those resources. And mm-hmm. oftentimes you'll have to have multiple transfers with the same surrogate. So mm. your surrogate doesn't begin their compensation until they're pregnant. So you have mm. to pay for the procedures, you know, another transfer, um, you know, your doctor's bills, the, the medicine. But a lot of those, you know, costs are front loaded once you're pregnant. A lot, you know, any agency that's going to have you, you know, recharge an agency fee every time you transfer. It's, no. it's And there's no insurance for this. There's not like so a... So there, there, there some new insurance policies are having some infertility coverage where you might have a max. Um, So sometimes they'll have things that like at least the medication is covered. I will say the majority still do have a surrogacy exclusion, Um, but there are some great new uh, companies. Uh, Carrot Fertility is one that's working with employers right now to try and um, extend infertility uh, insurance in your regular policy uh, that would be inclusive of surrogacy arrangements. Um, Ally Bank has infertility um, lending. So there's definitely steps in a direction to make this, you know, more affordable. No, I love that. And I love what you said. You know, you're in the business of trying to create families. And I I, I, I feel comfortable to ask you this because I'm, I'm sure like your insights on it would be amazing. Is is your goal that by making it less of a taboo topic, more of a more of a sort of safe and and documented and understood experience that it could become a little bit more widely available and that the cost could go down so that more and more people could, you know, afford it if it was something they were interested in doing? Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, I'm just going to throw a couple things out. So one of the the reasons that Alcia kind of came to be, um, and my partner is not here with me. I wish she could be here, but she's a woman of color. And um, she, you know, I, I won't speak for her that that's not my place, but, um, you know, she uh, has expressed um, a lot of, um, you know, th- there's there's definitely uh, racial disparities in the ability to seek out third party reproduction. So part of what Alcia's um, strategy is, is to ensure that we have a 50-50 pool. Uh, and let me explain what I mean by that. Um, I've had a lot of intended parents uh, come to me and say, you know, that they need a, a woman of color donor. And that most agencies, you know, they offered them, you know, maybe 25 donors and, you know, five of them were women of color. Um, and so we are intentionally trying to make our space inclusive and equitable um, mm-hmm. to have 50-50 representation. And she said, you know, for me, one of the things is that I need this to be accessible to, you know, women of color because it's not, it's even more of a taboo topic in our community. Um, so we work very closely with a kit, with a group called Fertility for Colored Girls that's working with us to be advocates in communities that don't have representation and don't have access to this. And with that, we're working with a lot of places, like a lot of attorneys and doctors that are willing to work at, you know, we do pro bono cases for all of our uh, Fertility for Colored 
girls, we don't take an agency fee and we look for surrogates that are willing to take um, a lesser compensation. So absolutely, as this becomes, I think, more mainstream um, and we start to recognize some of the, the things that you know, we need more women of color surrogates. You know, the, you know, I had an intended mother that I'm working with now who who's a black woman. And she said, you know, we go to the doctor and we face different nuances. And I want a black carrier because that black carrier knows when they go to the doctor, how they have to advocate for themselves differently. And it's the reality of our situation. And she said, I've gone to three agencies and I have not been able to be matched with a black carrier. And that was just heartbreaking to us. And so we are intentionally ensuring that we are targeting every community because everybody wants to be, you know, everybody's in, this is not a, a white person problem. This is not a, a you know, it doesn't matter. Infertility affects everyone. Um, and so I absolutely think that opening the dialogue allows to not only have, you know, more accessibility, but also to just bring light to, you know, the elephant in the room that this is like every other thing else. There's the systemic challenges based on color that we need to ensure um, and, and race that we need to ensure we address. And so absolutely think that that dialogue is going to help us get there. What about the legality of everything? You know, I've been reading that it's going to start to be legal in New York. Yes. How many states is it legal in? So it's it's pretty much legal everywhere. I don't know what New York is thinking. I, it, they have You'd think they would be, you know, kind of the, the cutting edge. But no, they it, it's not legal there. And it's it's not legal in Michigan. Um, there are some other states, um, and if you go to my website, this information is there, where while it's legal, there's no, um, you have to do an, a, a, they don't do pre-birth orders, so you have to do an after-birth adoption. There's more risk in those states, mm -hmm. so those are states that are, are often considered, you know, not seriously friendly. Um, California, Texas have always been, you know, kind of the, the forefront. Their, their laws are are very, very seriously friendly, very intended parent-friendly um, but New York has decided to um, legalize uh, commercial surrogacy as of February 21st of next year. So um, that's another reason that um, I think, you know, Alcia really wanted to ensure that we're being, you know, we're prepared and ready because um, I believe that um, it's going to just be enormous. There is so much need in that area um, and there's so many amazing fertility doctors there that I think um, it, it's going to be a, a hot spot for surrogacy as it should be. I mean, that's where the knowledge is. And so I think there's a huge opportunity there. Now, you've talked about how you're very close with the parents that you carried for and, and the children. Yeah. What's that like? Where do you fit into the equation in this very unconventional relationship? Um, so I think with my intended fathers, it's different, right? Because they know that you know, there's, there's not the, the motherly aspect of their relationship. So, you know, it's a little bit different because, um, you know, I'm kind of like the weird quirky aunt, I think, like the mother <laughs> aunt. Yeah. yeah like, but I, it's there, I think they're really proud of their story because, you know, they're intended, you know, they're such amazing dads that made sure from the very beginning that they honored their story and told their story. And it was like never anything other than a celebration. Like every time you're with them, it's like, let's celebrate these kids. And so because I'm part of that, I feel like they, you know, they always give me hugs and, and just, I think they just think I'm the crazy lady that carried them. You know, I'm just the fun, you know, kind of, aunt. um, you know, with my, uh, it's a little, I think it's different when you have an intended mother, um, in, in this situation or a mother at that point, um, because they know that there's, there's this very, very clear distinction. 
Um, and I think both um, minded mothers, you know, they're, they're not um, quiet about the story. They believe very much like I do that it's very important that you honor the story and tell the story. And so, you know, I'm just, um, a, a f- I think more of like a family friend who they respect and love and, and, you know, they're um, mindful of who I am and, and what I did for the family. Um, but it's just, you know, cordial and kind. And, you know, we send them gifts and they send us gifts and they're so kind to my children. And, and so it's just, you know, like good friends at this point. I think the one thing that every person that's interested in surrogacy needs to understand is every contract is really an effort of good faith, right? So I could put into a contract as an intended mother that I plan on having a a very involved relationship with the surrogate once that child is born. And you can have that expectation and that intended mother could have been so kind and cordial and involved in the entire pregnancy. And then once they get home and they have that child, their mindset changes about how much involvement they want. And they decide that that's not what they choose to do. So if you are the kind of woman that couldn't handle the fact that once the parents walk out of the hospital, you might never talk with them again, you really need to think if you're a candidate for surrogacy. There is an emotional aspect to this that can't be denied. You know, you still go through the normal hormones after you've had a child. And it's very difficult because no one remembers you were even pregnant, right? You're not taking care of a baby. No one wants to ask you questions. It's so weird. Like, what do you say to someone that was just a surrogate? No one talks to you about it. Even your best friends, they don't know what to say. So if, if you have an intended parent that makes the choice and it's their choice, you know, if if they choose to honor you know, they don't feel like they can handle it. They don't want to, it's their journey. You you can't judge that. You wish you would have, you know, you, I I hate that for the surrogate, but if if you don't know that you can handle that, you know, you definitely need to to do some soul searching and make sure that you're prepared because it it has happened. I've, I've had it happen to a couple of surrogates, you know, that are close friends of mine and it was, it was, it was hard for them. So um, definitely something to remember. What's the conversation that you have with the child as they grow up? 10 years from now, are they going to be like, well, where's the pictures of mommy pregnant with me? Yep. It's going to come up, you know, and, you know, obviously I'm not an intended mother. And so I pass no judgment on, on how anyone, you know, chooses to, to, to live their life or, or continue their story. But I can tell you as an adopted person and also someone who is an egg donor, um, one of the things that was very important to me when I did my egg donations was that I was registered in an egg donor base that would allow those, uh, you know, if there was a result of, you know, the donation was positive to know my medical history. And that was because when I went in to have my first child, they asked me so many questions and I was like, I don't know. And the doctor was like, you know, there's a thousand conditions that you could have that we would know and we could prevent them from being devastating or, you know, deathly to you. So for me, and I think for the experience and the general consensus in the community is that the ethical thing to do is to ensure that your child has an you know, the accessibility to their story, how you communicate that to them. And when you communicate that to them, I think is personal. I think it, it's, you know, based on, you know, did you use a donor? You know, did you not? Like, I think all of those things, but I think that the overarching, you know, community, especially from, you know, the psychology side had said it's, it, it's critical that you tell their story and you allow them to process their story because if it's not discussed, it becomes taboo. And mm-hmm. then there's complications that it's not a good thing. And, and like I said before, think about the emotional capacity that was used to bring a child in these arrangements to be, they need to understand and understand like, the time, energy, and money and everything that went into bringing them here is just amazing. And, and that should never be seen as anything but positive. 
And I think hiding it is literally the worst possible thing that you can do. I think it's detrimental to the child. Um, and, and I think, you know, in some cases, if there's a predisposition to a disease or something that could really help them live a healthier life as an adult, it could be, you know, dangerous for them. Yeah. So, you know, the intended mother has to choose the how and the why. But um, I think it, it's definitely something that needs to be discussed and, and, and talked about. No, I love you. I love you saying that. I mean, these these little babies that are born this way, whatever, you know, variation of the way that it is are very much wanted. Yes. You know, you think about you think about what goes into to having a baby and, you know, people who struggle or choose this as an option. And even if they struggle and they end up having, you know, being the carrier for their own baby. Yeah. Um, those are the babies that, you know, were really, really, really thought about. And yes. very much, you know, very, very, very much wanted. Um, Absolutely. You know, there's some really great books out there. Um, there's some resources on my website um, that kind of talk. There's all kinds of books, you know, books that I could use as a surrogate to talk to my kids about it. Um, books that, you know, if like a lot of people have children, um, you know, the, the traditional way, and then maybe they have a uterine rupture or something that happens. And so then they have to have a child that they have to use a surrogate. Or they chose to use the surrogate for a completely different reason. Um, you know, they just can't have more children or, it, you know, it's not good for their body. Their doctor advises against it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's books out there to make sure that both of these children understand. One of you might have been the traditional way, but there's no better way to do it. This is just the really cool and unique way that our family came to be. And how exciting is this? And there's so many resources out there now to help have those conversations. Because you have to think about that as well. There, you know, There is so many colors of this, this process and so many different variances. Um, and, and so, you know, it just, you have to seek out the resources to make sure that you can do this in the most healthy and ethical and productive way possible. Um, well, you've given us already so many great things to think about, but we do like to ask our guests to share their favorite thing. So I think that um, my, my thing right now is, is definitely um, a resource that's out there called um, Fertility for Colored Girls. Um, and that is um, a, an amazing group that has um, chapters all over the country that um, help raise awareness for um, women in communities of color. They have grant programs and just information sessions. And I think just considering, um, you know, what I think, you know, me personally, I've been on a journey. I think these last four years since we've had, you know, there's some uh, you know, as we all know, difficult and kind of tumultuous times and definitely, um, you know, race and, and things that have been going on this year have, have forced me out of my bubble. And I think that um, for me right now, that's a really critical part of my mission and Alcia's mission. And I encourage everybody to go there and just kind of read some of the stories, read some of the um, the ways that um, people of color are treated in the medical community. And I think that it could allow us to continue dialogue and kind of open up our circle of understanding. Um, I've met literally the most amazing women in this community through that group and the work that they do is just so phenomenal. Um, so right now that's kind of my thing. That, that's kind of my jam. So <laughs> amazing. That's a good one. A good one. <laughs> Yay! I mean, just wow. Like I, you know, this is something I have no expertise in. And it was so cool to get to hear from someone who is as passionate about, you can tell like the service that she is providing and the safety and security of that process and and really truly helping to give people 
this family that they've been longing for. Um, it's it's amazing. I, I it was it was most eye opening to me to hear the rigors of the sort of legalities around whose baby is this? You know, I mean, it's really it's fascinating because you in the you know, when you're entering into the contract phase, like, of course, everyone has the best of intentions, but you do have to go that extra mile and have all these intense conversations that you hope you never have to cross those areas. But it it helps put you in a better position if you ever were to be in that position. And um, and yeah, just really interesting to hear how sort of different parts of the country are opening up to the legality of surrogacy and making it more hopefully accessible down the road to to be a an option to people who uh, you know have exhausted their other paths and i think that's it's just it's always really interesting to hear from people who are just so engaged and in love with what they get to wake up and do every day and and imagine that being helping people become become parents. Just so cool. And that's really what strikes me as well. I mean, so much of I think so much of what we hear about surrogacy is like, you know, celebrities that we we think don't want to carry their own children because they don't want to mess up their perfect figure. (laughs) You know what I mean? I feel like. Right. Don't you? We hear about that a lot, you know, and it really is such a broader issue than that. And by the way, you know, the celebrities that have done it, these tabloid magazines have maybe written that, but maybe there was a lot of other, you know, things go into it, or maybe they had nothing to do with it all. And they, maybe they legitimately had trouble having these children. We'll, we'll leave you with this. Angela has a tremendous amount of information. She's doing incredible things to allow people to be parents. And I think we're just starting to get into a more honest place where people are sharing more openly the struggles that they're going through. And um, and it seems like Angela is, is doing a very thoughtful um, job uh, helping people become parents. So, um, so thank you, Angela, for this conversation. I definitely learned a lot. No, I totally agree. So educational and fun and loved getting to hear from Angela. And now it's time for our favorite things. Now it's time for our favorite things. Yes. All right, you guys, for my favorite thing this week, I want to highlight a truly game-changing product, (laughs) Um, especially if you're spending a ton of time at home and or have the option to be comfortable from the waist down, even if you have to look kind of fancy on the waist up for, you know, Zoom meetings. I have discovered what I'm convinced are the best sweatpants. Um, they are, I saw them on your Instagram. Oh, I, oh, I so good. I'm wearing so them in cute. black right now. Oh. <laughs> I like, I cannot even describe to you these. First of all, I think that waistband, waistbands, fine. Like we can have a debate about those, but drawstrings so that you can create a little cinched waist. And also your sweatpants don't fall down when you're bending over to pick up kids or you're bringing stuff from the car or whatever, like game changer. You don't realize how much of your life you spend hiking your pants up um, and your kids are like clawing on the knees and they're pulling them down. They come in these and like a bunch of different shades. I have, I have white, I have cream, I have black. I'm now looking on the website. They have a really pretty like kind of ca- like mm, it's called high dove and an olive color. I'm a green fanatic. I'm gonna have to get those. <gasps> they have but pink ones. They have pink ones, but so they're just they're the perfect lightweight fabric, so you can you know wear them around the house and never get hot, but also uh, not so sheer that like they feel like you're not wearing any pants. Um, They have a really cute little cropped bottom, uh, like a jogger style. I just have to tell you, I have really, I have, I've spent quite a bit of time in sweatpants and I can tell you, you're going to love these ones. That's so good. Mine today is a 
super namaste brand called Healthy Nest. And they have different baby products, wipes. Um, They also have cleaning supplies and they come in uh, canisters, like it comes with canisters to like mix it. And I'm always trying to think about different ways to become more green. Um, I love the way that they smell. Um, so there's like all purpose cleaners, they have baby wash. Um, but if you're ever interested in any of these, like I'm not throwing away bottles all the time, these refillable, um, products and things that are, um, you know, with all these harsh chemicals that we're using in the world. Um, these are ones that are not very harsh and, and that's what I do. Basically when I have to go out into the world, I'm Purelling my hands and I'm Cloroxing things and I'm Lysoling things and, and, you know, trying to keep as, as safe as possible from the virus. But in my home, I'm using very namaste organic things and Healthy Nest has some amazing products. So I recommend you guys check them out. That's it from us this week, guys. You can always catch us on Mom Brain. <laughs> you can go back and listen to all the old episodes if you're just missing us till next Wednesday. Um, we are on all your socials. We're on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. Um, and of course, you can email us, mombrainpod at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. We love getting to do our episodes, Mom Mail, where we answer your questions. So make sure you keep them coming. And we're sure that after this really you know deep dive into what is in some ways kind of an opaque world, you might have some follow-up questions, so we'd love to hear those too. Bye, guys. Bye. This is Mom Brain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. Mom Brain is a Gallery Media Group original production.